Now for our second reading and our text, let's turn again to the letter to the Hebrews, this time to chapter 4. Again, uh, very briefly to set a context, in this particular portion of Scripture, the writer to the Hebrews has been warning uh, those who are professing Christ, the Hebrew Christians, that is, who are professing Christ, he's warning them against falling away from that profession or turning back from following the Lord Jesus Christ. And um, to warn them, he takes the example of many Israelites who left Egypt but never made it to the promised land. They did not enter God's rest. Similarly, he is warning people who begin to follow the Lord Jesus Christ to make sure that they follow on to enter the heavenly rest and not fall short of that. So let's read in verse 11. Hebrews 4 at verse 11. Let us, therefore, be diligent to enter that rest, lest anyone fall according to the same example of disobedience. That's Israel's disobedience. For the word of God is living and powerful and sharper than any two-edged sword, piercing even to the division of soul and spirit and of joints and marrow, and is a discerner of the thoughts and intents of the heart. And there is no creature hidden from his sight, but all things are naked and open to the eyes of him to whom we must give account. Seeing then that we have a great high priest who has passed through the heavens, Jesus, the Son of God, let us hold fast our confession. For we do not have a high priest who cannot sympathize with our weaknesses, but was in all points tempted as we are, yet without sin. Let us therefore come boldly to the throne of grace, that we may obtain mercy and find grace to help in time of need. And really, our text is in uh, two parts. First of all, right at the end of verse 14, we have the main exhortation that the writer gives, and that's an exhortation to hold fast our confession. Let's hold fast our confession, and in connection with that, and as a means of doing that, in verse 16, let us come boldly to the throne of grace that we may obtain mercy and find grace to help in time of need. So let's hold fast our confession, and as a means to doing that, let us come boldly to the throne of grace. <clears throat> now that invitation to come to the throne of grace is an invitation uh, to come and find grace. 
and a grace that will help us in a time of need. Now, these verses, and in fact, this book or this letter that was written to people who were in a particular time of need. Now, I'm conscious that you could say, I could say, we could all say that all times are times of need, or to put that another way, we are needy in some way or another all the time. But nonetheless, there are certain times in life when in God's ordaining of providence, we are in special need. And the Hebrew Christians who received this letter were in the thick of such a time themselves. And the reason for it was because there was a huge pressure on them, a pressure to renounce their newfound faith in Jesus Christ as their Messiah, and just to conform themselves back to what they were before, as ordinary Jews in their belief and in their way of life. Because as far as their fellow Jews were concerned, these early Hebrew Christians were essentially traitors, uh, traitors to their forefathers, traitors to their culture as a Jewish people, uh, traitors to their customs, traitors to the religious traditions. And in fact, because they had embraced Jesus of Nazareth as Messiah, they were disturbers of the peace. They were disturbing synagogues. They were disturbing communities. They were disturbing cities. And the pressure on these people to draw back was so great that some of them were drawing back and conforming themselves to what they had before. Now, certainly the, the whole point of writing this uh, marvelous letter is to encourage them not to do that. And there's a kind of resolve that appears here and there to that end. If anyone draws back, my soul has no pleasure in him, God says. And the writer says, but we, in other words, I hope you, he says to his hearers or to his readers. And as I would say to you, I hope you too are of this persuasion that we are not of those who will draw back to perdition, to destruction. We're not going to go back, but we are of those who believe to the saving of the soul. Hebrews 10, verse 39. And however resolved you are to go on, it's somehow harder to keep that resolve when you see others going back. I don't think there's anything as distressing and as difficult to see people going back from following the Lord Jesus Christ. It's uh, far worse than seeing them not go forward. And it is important to remember that the Bible nowhere says that all who confess Christ shall be saved. Nowhere says that. And it's foolish to believe such a thing. Certainly, if we believe in our heart and confess with our mouth, we shall be saved. But those who are saved are those who endure to the end. They are those who really believe and who follow the Lord in faith and obedience. So for these Hebrew Christians, it was a real time of need and genuine pressure. Now, I don't know to what extent we have experienced such a thing in our lives. I'm sure if we've lived any length of time, we're bound to have. But it's difficult when a community 
recognizes you as someone who has betrayed their faith and heritage and are putting pressure on you to return because to return is easy. Uh, to carry on is difficult. So that's what I mean by a time of need. It was the first real persecution and the first falling away. Now, our own needs may be very different. Uh, our needs are always many. Our needs are always varied, but sometimes in our lives too, uh, situations arise which are genuine times of need. Perhaps a hostility that you've never had before from the world or even within the church itself. It may be that slander against you has taken root. It may be the case that you've experienced for the first time in your life perhaps shattering disappointment in people, perhaps even betrayal from friends. It may be the case that you've got a serious sickness, life-threatening for the first time in your life. Maybe it's a case of temptation coming your way that you've never experienced before in such a form and to such an intensity. Maybe it's just something like loneliness that you never expected and which crushes you. All these are genuine seasons of real need, and into them all the devil speaks. God speaks, of course, too. But for some strange reason, we seem more attuned sometimes to the voice that comes and says in some form or another, curse God and die. Or whatever the answer is to your problem, it's not found in God. Now, whatever our need, our duty is, as verse 14 tells us at the end of the verse, our duty is to hold fast our confession or hold fast our profession. The word here has clear reference to the stand that we took on the side of Christ when we homologated what Christ said and stood with him in connection with his views, his life, standing with him in faith and standing with him at all times and in all situations. So to hold fast our confession or our profession means just to keep on believing what you believe, keep on trusting the one in whom you trusted, and keep on obeying the one you obeyed. Keep on, endure, persevere, hold fast. And there are two incentives in the passage for doing so. And the first is a real awareness of the curse that falls on those who go back. In chapter 3 and in verse 12, the writer says, and this is a reference to Israel, some in Israel falling short of God's rest. Beware, brethren, lest there be in any of you an evil heart of unbelief, how does that manifest itself? In departing from the living God. But rather exhort one another daily, encourage each other, while it is still called the day of opportunity, lest any of you be hardened 
through the deceitfulness of sin. For we have become partakers of Christ if we hold the beginning of our confidence steadfast to the end. Couldn't be much clearer than that. And he goes on to say that if we have such an evil heart of unbelief, God sees it, and God will most certainly judge it, because he is able to discern the thoughts and the intentions of his heart, of our hearts. And in chapter 4, verse 13, there is no creature hidden from his sight, but absolutely everything is naked or exposed and open to the eyes of him to whom we must give account. God sees it. If, if we are at root unbelievers, if we are at root apostates from Christ, God will most certainly see that, and God will most certainly judge it. Because when the writer tells us that the word of God is living and powerful and sharper than any two-edged sword, part of that has a reference to the word of judgment, they shall not enter into my rest. In other words, the curse attached to the law is not a dead letter. It is living, it is active, and it is powerful. A law that's a dead letter is one that doesn't operate anymore. But God's blessings and curses are not like that. If he says that unbelievers shall not enter my rest, that is a living and a powerful word. And we must always remember that to be so. So that's why we resolve with the writer to the Hebrews that we are not of those who draw back to perdition, but of those who believe to the, to the saving of the soul. So that's the first incentive. You, you keep on and you hold fast to your confession because the consequences of falling away are terrible. Um, and really, that we will all be familiar with people who have fallen away to some extent from the gospel. Now, I say to some extent because none of us really knows what kind of falling away people have, and it's, it's quite perilous sometimes to, to speculate about it. There are those who backslide, and backslide pretty far and come backslide for quite a long time. We need to pray for their restoration and their return. But part of their restoration and return will involve a warning that if they are not restored and if they do not return, they will end in perdition. In other words, part of the incentive God uses to bring his own back is the fear of loss and desolation. And so we can't hide that and can't keep it back. And it is a burden to us, friends. It's a burden to us to see people pulling back from Christ. And let's pray for them that it would not be a drawing back with no return, but a coming back to the Savior. If you are in that category uh, yourself, and you could be without me knowing. Of course you could be. In fact, you could be without anyone here knowing, except the one present in this building who discerns the thoughts and intentions of the heart and can separate the joints and the marrow of the very internal parts of your being. So, unknown to everyone except him, if this is you, 
please recognize the seriousness of the course you are on. The trajectory has only one end, and the only alternative is to turn around and to come back to the Lord who you once professed. Your response to what I'm saying will largely be indicating whether you will or won't. The second incentive for holding fast is not avoiding the curse, but securing the blessing. Because, of course, those who do follow the Lord and who persist in following him in faith are those who enter into God's rest. Because there remains a rest for the people of God, and let us be diligent to enter that rest in case any of you fall according to the example of disobedience. Or again, going back to that other text in chapter 10, we are not of those who draw back to perdition. We, by the grace of God, are those who press on to the saving of the soul. In other words, the end point of holding fast your confession is absolute deliverance. Deliverance from sin, from trials, all the afflictions that came your way in your time of need. The deliverance that comes with death when believers are at death made perfect in holiness, they do immediately pass into glory. And there, of course, they enjoy the Lord's presence. So that's the second incentive. Hold on to your confession because it ends in life and in salvation. Now, that's all very well. We know we need to hold on. We need to hang on. We need to keep on. We need to resolve to keep on. But how do we do it? Well, that's why the last verse of the chapter becomes so important. In order to hang on, to hold on, or to keep on, or to press forward, we need to do something in a time of need. Every time we are seriously tried, we must come, verse 16, with boldness to the throne of grace that we might obtain mercy and find grace to help us in these times of need. In other words, if we come to the throne of grace, we will receive there everything we need to keep us from falling. Unto him who is able to keep you from falling. And he keeps you from falling by giving you what you need not to fall, and you find it at the throne of grace. Now then, let's look a little more closely at this, the throne of grace. That's your way of escape from trial. It's your way of escape from perdition or from falling away. Uh, Paul tells us, uh, as he told the Corinthians, that there is no such temptation overtaking you. And I think that word actually is better translated trial there. There is no such trial overtaking you except as is common to man. I think the reason he stresses that is because sometimes the devil says to you that your circumstances are absolutely unique. 
there's a reason why you just don't fit. You don't fit the Lord's people. You can't fit the Lord's people. Can't. No, Paul says, whatever comes your way, whatever trial is common to man. But God will, along with the trial, make a way of escape that you may be able to bear it or to endure the trial. Now, I'm conscious that some people understand that verse as a way of getting out of temptation, which is interesting and may or may not be true, but I don't think it's the point of the verse at all. What he's dealing with is is this, really. Um, It's the way of escape from a crushing trial that enables you to bear the trial, not necessarily to get out of it, but to carry it, to carry it well. What is that way of escape? Well, I think this is it. It is the way that leads directly to the throne of grace. In other words, if you have a trial that's crushing you, and there is a a pressure within it, either from others or from the devil, which says, just let go, you know, go back. There's a way of escape from that. And the way leads to the throne of grace. And once you deal with God at the throne of grace, you'll be able to bear it, to carry it, to endure it as you should. Now, with that in mind, let's just look at this a little more closely. Let us come with boldness to the throne of grace. Now, uh, coming to the throne of grace is, of course, coming to God. Coming to God is uh, coming into his presence, Let us before his presence come with praise and thankful voice. To come to God is to draw near to God. To draw near to God is to come to God, particularly in the letter to the Hebrews, which is built around the idea of coming into the tabernacle and making your way through representation into the very presence of God himself. When we worship God, we are coming to God. We come into the presence of God. That, that's what it is that sanctifies this hour or hour and a quarter or hour and a half or whatever it is. It is sanctified by a call to worship and by a blessing. In other words, we summon ourselves into the very presence of God. There's almost a kind of crude analogy. And at one level, it's almost inappropriate. When, uh, <clears throat> when the magic lamp is rubbed, uh, the genie is present. There is an analogy. When we call upon the name of the Lord, immediately we are in the presence of God. Therefore, worship is expected. Worship is expected on his terms and in, and in his conditions. And of course, the particular act of worship that is being referred to here is the act of prayer. This too, the delivery of a sermon from the word of God on my part and the hearing of the sermon on your part is also an act of worship. We offer collectively that to God in his presence, which we believe is here. But this act of worship referred to in this verse is the act of prayer, where we come to the throne of grace. So if we are in need... If you are in a really needy situation, your call is to pray, to come into God's presence and speak. Speak 
in the presence of God. Let's look at why we come, where we come, and how we come. Where we come, why we come, and how we come. First of all, where we come. Obviously, we are coming to God. Obviously, too, we are coming to God in heaven. But there are two things highlighted here about the presence of God. The first thing is that we come to him as he is enthroned. As he is enthroned. We are coming not simply to God, but to the throne of grace. Now, that reminds us right away that we are coming to a sovereign. You're coming to a king. And, of course, you can't call that to mind without calling intelligently to mind that you are coming to the king of kings and to the Lord of lords. King of heaven and earth. There are lords many, kings many, of many principalities and kingdoms and so on. But the Lord of lords or the king of kings holds sway over all of heaven and earth, including, obviously, the circumstances which have created your pressing distress and your need. The people who are involved in it, the providences who are involved in it, here they are under this scepter, under its sway. It's important to remember that. Uh, We often perhaps glibly say, well, God's in control. And maybe we don't think about that enough or even apply it properly or intelligently, but God absolutely is in control. That is the first thing that we need to remember. In other words, that ties in with where we were this morning and last Sabbath morning, that this God is able to help you. Whatever your need or distress, you are coming to a throne on which a king sits who is able to help. He's a plenipotentiary. He has fullness of power. The second thing about where God is, is not just that he is enthroned, but he he is enthroned graciously, or he sits on a throne of grace. In other words, he sits on his sovereign throne as someone who is disposed to help you. If you come to him in faith through his appointed mediator, who we'll come to in a second, He is disposed to help. In other words, there's as as much as as though it was a sign written, grace dispensed here, help for the needy here. And it's important to remember again that, that that is there like that. You must remember to connect the throne of sovereignty and the grace of the God who sits on it. It, One reason I've got for saying that is because it's very easy to think of the sovereign throne of God as something connected simply with things like justice or like judgment. Excuse me for a second. Just get the other psalm book. But in Psalm 99, for example, um, the eternal Lord doth reign as king. Let all the people quake. And here we see him enthroned. He sits between the cherubim. Now, these 
are the angelic throne bearers. Let the earth be moved and shake. You notice the effect of the sovereign throne of God. It's to produce awe, and you would say fear too. The Lord is great and high above all peoples. Thy great and dreadful name, for it is holy. Let them bless. Or again, God reigneth. Uh, Dark clouds encompass him, and in righteousness with judgment dwells his throne. Fire goes before him, and it burns up his foes around about. His lightnings enlighten the world. The earth saw and shook, and hills uh, melted away like wax at the presence of the Lord. The throne of God produces awe and fear. Again, in the well-known words of Psalm 89, we read that justice and judgment of thy throne are made the dwelling place. But interestingly, in this psalm, you have a turn. And the throne of God is suddenly associated with something else. Justice and judgment of thy throne are made the dwelling place. Mercy, accompanied with truth, shall go before thy face. Now, this is a picture of God, the one we can approach, the God who is coming to meet us in the gospel, or us coming to meet him in prayer. Mercy and truth are going before his face. It's as though the the throne is coming towards you. Oh, greatly blessed the people are, the joyful sound that know in brightness of thy face, O Lord, they ever on shall go. It's a throne of grace. The all-powerful on the throne is one who dispenses grace. So that's where you come. You come to a place where grace is dispensed. Now, the devil will certainly again find ways to try to persuade you to believe that the God you're dealing with is not a God who's interested in your case. He's not a God who's interested in healing you. He's not a God who's interested in your happiness. He's not a God who's concerned about your needs. Well, there's a great sign on his sovereign throne saying, grace dispensed here. Whenever you come to pray, that's where you come to a helper, to your father, to your helper. Don't lose sight of that. In all our thoughts of God's grandeur and majesty, which are right and fitting, don't lose this. He is there to help. Father is there to help. That's all father should be. That's all father should be. Whatever is done, a father will always help. Why do we come? Well, we come in a time of need, obviously, for help. We come to a throne of grace, obviously, for grace. And what is grace but help? Sometimes when you ask for a definition of grace, people might say different things. I think the most common definition of grace is God's help for the undeserving. And That's absolutely right. Uh, Perhaps it might be fair to say that undeserving isn't strong enough because we're not just in a position where we don't 
deserve the help as such, but we've done plenty to give God a reason never to help us at all. It's not as though we're somehow neutral, uh, but we're enemies. It's God's help for those who are enemies, for rebels. But it's definitely used, the word grace, in connection with people who just don't deserve that help from God. And we're never to think we do. Whatever ground we stand on, and we'll look at that in a second, we must never stand on that ground. Self-pity can make you stand there. I mean, sometimes, again, when you pass through fire and water, the devil arouses all kinds of things in you, and you start to feel sorry for yourself, as, as though you had some kind of righteous cause, as though you had some kind of plea, um, some kind of hold or leverage on God for his goodness and his mercy. This word grace, for example, is not used of God's help for Adam in the Garden of Eden. Um, Some people call God's relationship with uh, Adam a a covenant of grace in its own way, but I don't think that that is at all correct. The term covenant of works is absolutely a good term for it. God was obligated to help Adam. And I use that term... um, respectfully but accurately god was obligated to help adam on the basis of the relationship between them do good and you shall live adam did good so what he received was not grace as such it was as paul would say of works neither is the word grace used for god's help for christ christ was certainly brought into positions of real weakness And Christ had many times in his life that could be described as times of need. But we are not told that God showed grace to Christ. I think there's only one exception to that, where it speaks of him growing up as a child, and uh, the expression is used that God's grace was upon him, which is a slightly different use of the word grace. It means favor, that the favor of God was upon him. But grace in the sense of God's help for the undeserving is never used for Christ. For the same reason that it was never used of Adam in the Garden of Eden. In other words, Christ merited the help of God. There was never a point at which Christ forfeited the help of God. Because he was always personally upright and personally holy, personally faithful and personally pure. And so whatever favor and kindness God showed him, Christ earned it. And that's why we cannot speak of God's grace for the undeserving in connection with Christ. But of course, it's different with us. I'm conscious that you may say, well, surely God is obligated to help us as Christians. Well, well, that's a clever argument. And in fact, It is true, but he is obligated to help you as a Christian, not because of you. He's obligated to help me, not because of me, but because of another. Because of the faithfulness and the righteousness of another. But grace is his help for undeserving people. And that's the thing, you see, when you come to God for help, you feel undeserving. Well, that's who God specializes in helping. I don't know who else he helps. But undeserving people, you say, well, I'm an undeserving Christian. Well, I'm an undeserving Christian too. But that's who God helps. 
That's who God wants to help. That's who he does help. And the help that he gives is helps, or the helps that he gives are helps like encouragements, guidance, comforts, wisdom, strength, endurance, all these things. I could go on. You could go on too. These are genuine helps that come from God found at his throne. Nowhere else. Uh, That's where he dispenses them. Come and get them. Come and get them. But you'll notice that it's not just grace that we find at the throne of grace. Strangely enough, unexpectedly, we're told in this text, in the very last verse of chapter 4, that we also find mercy there. Let us come boldly to the throne of grace that we may find grace. Well, that's what you would expect the verse to say, but it doesn't quite run like that. It says, let us come boldly to the throne of grace that we may obtain mercy and then find grace to help in time of need. Now, why say mercy? I come for grace. Why get mercy? Well, first of all, you get mercy because it's the chief grace that God gives out. Whatever you think about your needs and I think about mine, your greatest need tonight is to be freed from sin. Your greatest problem in the pew is not the problem you think you've got. However big it is, your biggest problem is sin. And you must recognize that. And God wants you to recognize that. And he wants you every single time you come before him to acknowledge that. In a sense, it's an acknowledgement of your lack of worthiness. It's an acknowledgement that your sin against him and indeed your sin against others, even if you may be rather obsessed with the sin of another against yourself, but your sin against him and your sin against others are your greatest problem. And the biggest grace you can receive from God is mercy for your sins. Number one, before you're extricated from anything or helped in anything else, you need the mercy of God. It's a strange prayer that doesn't have a request for mercy in it. I suppose, in a way, we acknowledge that by saying pretty much all the time, and forgive us our sins, O Lord, in Jesus' name. It's a good thing to have in a prayer. I hope it isn't just a kind of addendum or just something that we put at the end, just before the close, because it's important. Confession of sin, receiving forgiveness, and a sense of absolution, cleansing. These are vital things in a prayer. It's also important because without that, nothing else flows from God's throne. Um, And in fact, unless you deal with sin, sometimes you can't even get to the throne of God. I don't know if you've had the experience sometimes of being conscious that you need God's help, but you just feel so bad that you can't even ask for it. Um, Well... I understand that very well. But you you need to deal with that in the order in which it comes. 
just cast yourself at God's feet and say, I am unclean and I am unworthy and I confess all that I am before you. God accepts that. God takes it, expects no penance, just genuine repentance, and move on to present your need to him, and he'll give grace for it, because he always gives the mercy first. If you sincerely ask, he'll give the mercy. That unblocks the channel, and out comes the rest. Out comes the rest. If I regard sin in my heart, the Lord will not hear me. And certainly if we come to ask anything of God without genuine confession and without a plea for mercy, let not, to paraphrase James or to, or to quote James, let not that man think that he shall receive anything from the Lord. God takes a dim view of a request for grace that doesn't contain a request for mercy. That's the chief grace that we receive, forgiveness. So you want mercy and you want help. Well, how do you ask for it? Well, the text tells us to ask boldly. It's a strange word that. It's not the word we would expect. In fact, we would expect pretty much the opposite word. Let him ask humbly. That's what we would expect, really. Let us come humbly to the throne of grace. I can identify with that. Let us come boldly to the throne of grace for mercy. Can I come boldly for mercy? Can I come boldly for grace? Well, yes. If boldly means with confidence, which is what it does mean. I suppose it raises the question, what what does our confidence actually rest on? I mean, in what way can I actually come confidently or boldly to God in prayer? Well, that's where our vision, you see, moves away, just like the vision of the seer in the book of the Revelation, which moves away suddenly from the one on the throne to the one just beside it, to the high priest in the posture of intercession. As the writer tells us here, the great high priest. Seeing then in verse 14 that we have a great high priest who has passed through the heavens, Jesus, the Son of God, let us hold fast our confession. For we do not have a high priest who cannot sympathize with our weaknesses, but was in all points tempted as we are yet without sin. Let us therefore, because he's there, because he's at the throne of grace, As a high priest, let us come boldly to it that we might obtain the mercy and the grace that we need in a time of need. Our high priest is the Lord Jesus Christ. He's called our great high priest because he is a preeminent high priest. There is no high priest comparable with him. Not even Aaron, who was the greatest of all the high priests according to the Jews, doesn't touch this one. It's his presence that secures the grace of God from his throne. How does he do that? Well, first of all, because he is God's high priest. Chapter 5, if you would go on to actually read it, makes that very plain for us. Let me just maybe read the first five verses of it. Again, there are close, compact thoughts here. 
It's difficult to move from the one to the other and take them in. But we're told here in chapter 5, just after the invitation to God's throne, we're told that every high priest taken from among men is appointed for men and things pertaining to God. So a real high priest is someone who is appointed from men, genuinely appointed to deal with God, to offer things that deal with sin, gifts and sacrifices for sins. Qualification? Well, the qualification stressed here is that he must have compassion on the ignorant. Now, that seems strange to us. Why should that be a a qualification? But let's just accept it for the moment. He can have compassion on those who are ignorant and going astray, since he himself, notice here, it doesn't say that he is ignorant and going astray, but subject to weakness. So, so the high priest has to himself be conscious of weakness and infirmity. And in the case of these human high priests, they are required, just as for the people, also to sacrifice for themselves. On the great day of atonement, you'll remember that the high priest had to first of all deal with his own sins before God, before he formally dealt with the sins of the people. And last of all, no man takes this honor to himself. I mean, that's critical. Nobody can actually assume this role on behalf of God's people in this world except the one who was called by God as Aaron was. And then the inversion begins to invert. You've reached this point, and now he winds his way back, begins with the calling. So also Christ did not glorify himself, to become the high priest. He was not self-appointed, but he who said to him, you are my son. Or again in verse 6, you are a priest forever, according to the order of Melchizedek. So when we come to God in prayer, you can be sure that the one that is at God's right hand, who, who you are to see, as it were, by faith, though he's invisible, was called by God to be there. God appointed him as a representative for all who would come to him. And he qualified him for it. We're told, interestingly enough, back to our own chapter, to chapter 4, and in verse 14, that this great high priest that we have has passed through the heavens. What an interesting expression. And on first reading, maybe second or third, to a bit of an obscure expression. What does it achieve to tell us that he passed through the heavens? Well, I think the meaning must be something like this. That the high priests under the old covenant passed through the holy place and into the holy of holies. And they dealt with God there. Now, of course, the Jews were saying to Christians, you've got no temple, you've got no priesthood, you've, you've lost everything, really. And what have you gained? All the writer says, we've gained this. We've got someone who doesn't go into a holy place made with hands or a, a most holy place made with hands, which is just a figure of something. Because we have a high priest who has passed through the heavens into the heaven of heavens, which is the dwelling place of God. Our great high priest 
is in God's actual sanctuary, not his temporary throne room upon the earth, but in his actual sanctuary and throne room in heaven, where your prayer center, where your presence go, when you goes, when you call upon the name of the Lord, he's there. And he's there as your high priest. God has promised, in other words, that if you, if you, um, can I just say, enlist his services, just as if you were wanting to fight a legal battle, you, you would enlist a solicitor or an advocate on your side. If you enlist this high priest to stand for you before God, God accepts you. All represented by this high priest have God's ear all the time. Just name the name and you are in the hearing of God who is able to save to the uttermost all who come to him through this high priest. He is there, appointed by God, passed through the heavens in the presence of God as your high priest and your representative. And what's more, he is in sympathy with you. And for some reason, this is stressed. In verse 15 of chapter 4, because he says, we have a high priest, or we do not have a high priest who cannot sympathize with our weakness, but one who was in all points tempted as we are, yet without sin, let us therefore come boldly. It's a double negative there. I sometimes think this text is easier understood if we just delete the double negative and just make it a positive. We have a high priest who can sympathize with our weakness. Why is there a double negative? Well, I think the suggestion that was made uh, long ago by a Puritan is, is the right one, that the Jews were actually used to high priests who were not really very friendly people. Uh, the priesthood became very arrogant as an institution. There's no denying that. And in the days of Christ, I mean, they were being wined and dined at top tables, and they really had no interest in the people whatsoever, none at all. They just seemed to be there. Well, they were there by birth, uh, although something strange had happened uh, along those lines. But it was, it was a position. It was an honor, an honorable position, nothing to do with helping the people. If you wanted help, don't go, to, don't go to the high priest. He's not really interested in you. Hence the double negative. We do not have a high priest who cannot sympathize with our weakness. You know, there's something lovely about this in thinking about Christ as someone who sympathizes with you. It puts a lot of warmth into the whole transaction. It puts warmth into our coming to God. It puts warmth into God's answer. Everything that happens has feeling and warmth and attachment with it. He knows. He was in all points tempted or tested as you are. Again, I, I think that the word testing is better here than tempted. People, people translate it as tempted, and then they start raising all kinds of questions about what temptation was it and how did he experience tempta temptation. Testing is better. He was tested in every point as you are, which includes temptation. But it's far wider than that. He was tested at every point. What do you mean by that? Well, think of the life of the Lord. Think about that life in a way that we don't often think about that life. 
And what suddenly do you see? Well, you see a man who was sometimes intensely lonely. You see a man who was very often misunderstood. You see a man who lacked sympathy. You see a man who was rejected by his own family. Every single one of them, with the exception of his mother, his father having died some time back. You see a man who was let down by his friends constantly and betrayed by some of those closest. You see a man who was slandered. You see a man who was falsely accused. You see a man who was beaten, smitten, spat upon. You see a man who was shamed publicly, stripped naked and crucified. You tell me what you've got that he didn't have. Tell me. Tell me what you've got in life that he didn't have. He's a man for all men and for all women too. There's no doubt about that. He was absolutely tested in all points. Hungry, yes, more hungry than you ever were. Thirsty, more thirsty than you ever were too. Yet, without sin. It's strange that some people should find that a reason for finding identification difficult, rather than being a reason for rejoicing in identification. The point about him being without sin is not to challenge you to be without sin. Of course that's our calling, but it's irrelevant here. The point is that he stayed sinless, pure, and holy, harmless, and undefiled. Had he not, it's all over. The doorway to God's entrance is shut, and any grace that God has to give can never come. The point of being without sin is that he did it. He, he finished the work. He endured the cross. He despised the shame. And out of love for you and the joy that was set before him, he did all that. And he did not sin. Thank God he did not sin. Because it makes him a perfect high priest. And one who still sympathizes. I'm sure I've told you before, but I remember um, as a fairly young Christian hearing a minister preach on another text, um, but touching on the sympathy of Christ. And he said something that always stuck with me. And I think in speaking of the sympathy of Christ, it's something I always feel I, I want to share. He spoke about the way in which we sometimes <clears throat> uh, forget sympathy and how to sympathize. He says, what he said was that you can sometimes pass through an ordeal of such severity that, that when you're in it, and when you come out of it, you say, well, you know, if I ever come across anybody in that situation, I'll help them as much as I possibly can. And he says, sometimes maybe you do, but sometimes he says, it's amazing how you forget. You, you maybe hear of people in that situation and you just move on because there's something else in your life. And, and for some reason, you lose that power to sympathize and... Christ just doesn't. He just doesn't. In, in the fullness and freshness of his pure humanity, he still feels and he still sympathizes. And there's nothing about his experience that he's forgotten, nothing that he's moved on from in that kind of way. No. When you are maligned, uh, when you are harassed, uh, when you're 
distressed and when you're persecuted, he sympathizes with that. With a sympathy far more genuine than you've ever shown anybody else or me. Because even our best sympathy is still mixed and tarnished with something. But his is not. And even in your sin and in your shame, well, he knows what took you to that. He never yielded to any of it, but he knows what took you there. Who knows the strength of a thing but the person who's endured it? And he'll ask on your behalf. Uh, Or if, if you present your requests, as we thought, to your father, he covers them with his own intercession. And his father can't refuse him. He can't refuse him. He can't refuse him. He's more worthy in God's sight than he is in yours. Oh, how pleased God the Father is with God the Son. How pleased the Son is with the Father. He covers up our intercession with his because he ever lives to make intercession for us and God bestows the blessing. Now, if you come in this way, let me close by saying this. You come to the throne of grace in this way, a miracle happens. The miracle is, as we thought in the morning, that God infuses the grace that you need into your soul. It happens in prayer. I sometimes think that um, you're not always conscious. I mean, <laughs> there are lots of things in life that you receive at a given time that you're not really conscious of having received until a little bit later. Um, I remember comparing it before to, to charging a drill. A, a drill is being charged um, when it's lying there connected to the source. You only discover its power when you squeeze the button later. Prayer is, prayer is like that. You may not necessarily feel at the time that you're being energized, but you absolutely are being energized. It, when you make contact with God in prayer, there is something happening to your soul. Maybe it's later as you're going around and about that you realize that something is happening to your soul. Something is changing because God changes souls. He genuinely does. As the psalmist says um, at the end of Psalm 28, he says, uh, The Lord is my strength and shield. My heart upon him did rely, and I am helped. I am helped. Yeah, helped. Hence my heart doth joy exceedingly. It may not, as I said, be the end of your trial, but it is absolutely the strength to endure it. And that's, um, that's really what matters. Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego quench the violence of fire. Others in Hebrews 11 were sawn in half. What's the difference? The difference is... Uh, God helping in one way and helping in another. They were both helped. Isaiah, who was sawn in two, was just as helped as Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, upon whom even the smell of the burning didn't light. And really, at the end of the day, I know that's what you want and that's what I want. It's not to come out of something. It's to carry it, to carry it well, to carry it to the glory of God. And God will give you that. Just come and ask. Just come and ask. Let us pray.
Lord our God, grant us holy boldness to ask, knowing that the way of access has been opened by your Son, who is a worthy high priest. And the life that he lives, he lives on our behalf, always to make intercession for us until we arrive home and he presents the kingdom to you, the Father. We bless you for his mediatorship and for his glorious priesthood and for your willingness to dispense help from your own sovereign throne. O Lord, help us tonight, you who knows our needs and the way that we take, discerning the very thoughts and intentions of our hearts. Lord, help us to the honor and praise of your Son, in whose name we pray. Amen. Uh, let's uh, close our service singing in Psalm 89, or reading in Psalm 89, verse 13. I don't need to read these verses because I, I read them really already at verse 13, God's arm full of power, page 345, and his hand great in might. And... Uh, as well as justice and judgment in verse 14, God is coming to us with mercy and with truth. And greatly blessed the people are, the joyful sound that know in brightness of thy face, O Lord, they ever on shall go. We'll hear it sung to the tune Irish, verses 13 to 16.
Let's stand to receive the blessing of God. The grace of the Lord Jesus Christ and the love of God and the fellowship of the Holy Spirit be with you all. Amen.